1: Welcome to Healing with Dr. George, the power of Chicano Latinx art. This is a podcast that explores the themes of self and community healing, whether as an artist, curator, collector, or admirer. I am your host, Dr. George Jesus Mesa, a Chicano clinical psychologist with a passion for promoting and preserving Chicano Latinx art. I am working in conjunction with our partners at www.latinoarte.com an online marketplace that showcases and promotes the work of Chicano Latinx artists throughout the United States. Our guests for the podcast will include celebrated artists, collectors, curators, and influencers who will share their experiences and perspectives on Chicano Latinx art as we explore the themes of self and community healing through Chicano Latinx art. Our guest is Dan Guerrero. Dan began his multifaceted career in New York, where he moved from East Los Angeles at age 20 to pursue a career in musical theater. He performed off-Broadway in regional theater, summer stock, and musical reviews in Manhattan's most fabled cabarets. He later became a successful theatrical agent representing Tony Award winners and future Hollywood stars he returned home to Los Angeles for an equally successful time as a casting director for stage and television before turning his talents to producing and directing. Dan produced Lalo Guerrero, the Original Chicano, an award-winning documentary on his late father, Chicano music legend Lalo Guerrero. The film aired nationally on PBS stations in the Voices series, hosted by Edward James Omos and included a DVD release. It continues to screen at national and international film festivals. Dan is an influential activist, speaking out in print, television, and radio interviews in English and Spanish on both Latino Chicano and LGBTQ issues. He is a popular figure on the speaking circuit and has addressed many prestigious groups and organizations throughout the United States. The Dan Guerrero Collection on Latino Entertainment and the Arts has been established in the California Ethnic and Multicultural Archives at the University of California at Santa Barbara. And the Dan Guerrero Research Collection is housed at the UCLA Chicano Studies Research Center that includes his oral history, recorded for the LGBT and Credit's Initiative Project. Most recently, the Dan Guerrero Gatino Collection became part of the One National Gay and Lesbian Archives at the USC Libraries. Welcome, Dan Guerrero. Let us jump into our questions. Sounds good. On a
2: very uh, gray California morning. Tell us a little bit about your history, Dan. Oh my God. Well, let's start it with the Aztecs. My history, good grief. Well, let me do it as succinctly as I can. I was born in in Tucson, raised in East LA, fell in love with musical theater when I was in my teens. So moved to New York when I was 20 and loved it so much I stayed until I was 40. And then I returned and in musical theater, Broadway, blah, blah. Then I returned to L.A. Uh, in the early 80s, 1982. I moved to New York in 1962. Little Chicanos from East L.A. were not flying back and forth across the country at that time. And I came back in 82 and started to get very involved uh, in in the Latino community because 20 years, you know, I'm one of I'm one of the few Chiquini, Chicanos that, uh, uh, um, you know, you're always talking about uh, crossing into the mainstream. I was already in the mainstream for 20 years. I crossed the other way, and uh, and got involved in in the Latino community, which became, of course, my passion. And I became very much an activist using my work. Um, and I was a um, what did I do? I started I was in casting for a while, and then I started producing and directing. And all the 90s, I produced uh big television specials and HBO specials and music and award shows, PBS stuff. And and then I started to do live events. I produced big events at the Kennedy Center. I've directed for the LA Opera, that kind of stuff. And um, and I'm still doing all that stuff at this age and stage, and I'm proud to say I'm 81.
1: Amazing. And you look uh, 41, if I may say. I look 80. (laughs) (laughs) You have such an interesting history. I was reading up on your history. Your father was there's Lalo Guerrero, the founder of Chicano Music. I also was reading that your father and Linda Ronstadt's father were childhood friends. So you grew up with Linda Ronstadt. Well, they weren't childhood
2: Ronstadt. friends. They weren't childhood friends, but they, they were very good friends. He knew Linda when she was a child. She, she, she swears that she remembers, and knowing her, I'm absolutely sure it's true. Uh, mm-hmm. My dad serenading her with La Burrita when she was still in diapers. And so uh, but he was very good friends with uh, with her dad and um, and people Linda and I are extremely close friends, but it had in a way nothing to do with our fathers because people think Linda and I grew up together. But she was raised in Tucson. I was not. I moved to L.A. with my pet family here when I was like, I don't know, three, four years old. And um, and she's, you know, like a decade younger. So I went off to New York, and then, and then she started her career, and then she became a superstar, and then I moved to L.A., and we never really met. We never really met until I was uh, producing El Show that Paul Rodriguez on Univision in the early 90s. <clears throat> and she came on as a guest uh, uh, with the Camperos during her Canciones de mi Padre period, and she came on as a guest and we met and I said by the way my dad is and she was like oh my god but what she did not know is that we had dad as a surprise for her and so in the middle of uh, her of her chatting she did her she performed and uh, and then she uh she's sitting there with Paul I know I'm supposed to look in that but I'd rather talk to you there I don't really care uh-huh yeah. and um <laughs> and so she finished and then Paul said by the way we have a little surprise for you and out came dad and it was Absolutely such a beautiful moment. I, I just loved it because, you know, she's Linda Ronstadt. I mean, she's even beyond stardom. She's she's out there. You know, that's a true iconic figure that she just is. And, um, and suddenly, I swear, she became a little girl. And she started to talk about my dad serenading her. And then he promptly got his guitar and went into La Burrita. And the great Linda Ronstadt... Starts doing what she did, little <laughs> doing the ears and the clip clops like she used to do, and it was it was absolutely beautiful. And and so we met then, and then our paths crossed on and off for for a good many years. I'd see her at an event or whatever, and uh, and one day I was Eva Longoria was having a fundraiser for uh, uh, a, a documentary about a f- uh, farm worker children, and I was at the event and in walk Linda, which shocked me because Linda lives in San Francisco. This was here in in Hollywood. And, uh, and we're sitting there talking as she turns to me, she says, now I know you're a producer, but what do you produce? I said, well, and then I told her, she goes, I need you. She was at that time, the artistic director. Do you care about this story?
1: I I care very much, please. I'm enthralled. Um, Go ahead.
2: She was the, uh, um, Director, or whatever the she was, the head of the Mexican Heritage and Mariachi Festival in San Jose because she lived in San Francisco. And it was two weeks of film and, and uh, art exhibitions and all documentaries, ending with a huge concert in the uh five, ten thousand seat arena, whatever it is, where they do hockey in San Jose. And um, anyway, long story short, I became the artistic director and she was the whatever and that we worked together on that and that was it now all we say is we should have grown up together we should live next door to each other I just I just treasure my friendship she is the most I can't even tell you as magnificent as she is as a talent she is the same as a person she is the most beautiful person um just giving and very accessible. And uh, I, I just can't tell you, she's, she's just the greatest. I love her, I love her. Great
1: story. That's my, that's my
2: Linda story.
1: I, I'm wondering <laughs> about your history as the son of a famous singer. What, what were your early recollections of your father, Lalo
2: Guerrero, growing up? It, it was embarrassing. <laughs> it was embarrassing. Well, he started to get really well-known when I was like in junior high. You know, so you're 13, 14, you don't even know who the hell you are, you know, and all of a sudden it's, they're asking him to sing at school assemblies. And I'm like, Oh my God, you know, that's the age when you don't want to go to the movies with your parents. You want to go with your friends, you know. And so, no, it was not at all pleasant. I didn't care for it at all. And, and by that time I had already discovered musical theater. So. Rancheras and cumbias it did nothing for me. I wanted to know the score to Bye Bye Birdie. And, you know, I was just in a whole other space. Um, and then I moved to New York, you know, uh, when I was 20. Um, so the truth is, when I moved back in 82, that's when my dad and I really connected. Uh, I have a brother, Mark, very talented musician, and he was, uh, he's like nine years younger. <clears throat> and when he was little, I was already in my teens and, you know, he was playing guitar along with dad and he was into sports and dad was into sports. And I was in my room doing musicals. So that was kind of their period. But then when I came back and I started to produce for television and doing lots of Latino things and and people would hear, oh, my God, that's your dad. And and they, you know, we started to get out there and he had a whole because he had this chunk where he kind of retired. You know, uh, he, um, my parents divorced just when I moved to New York and he eventually remarried and moved to Cathedral City. And uh, and Lydia, who's lovely, and she had two kids and he raised them and he was singing out there and he basically had a quieter life. And then when I came back and he started getting involved with some of my things and at the same time, he was being studied at Chicano Studies. You know, people were learning about him and so he suddenly had this whole renaissance and he had a whole new career you know at 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 a later age uh and that's when we were you know we did so we worked together so many times and then when he got older and he couldn't really travel alone i used to travel with him and um so that's when we had our time and those 20 years were were fantastic 20 82 he died in 05 that chunk of time was primo
0: yeah
1: his contributions to the music industry are, are, are many. One of them being that his music was used, uh, was the, the, was, was the backdrop for the music in
2: Zoot Suit. The play Zoot Suit, a lot of his music is used in that play. That's correct. The interesting thing is that it's not that he wrote it for Zoot Suit. Those were all songs that he wrote and recorded in the Zoot Suit era. Vamos a bailar, Los Chucos Suaves. And then when uh, Luis was doing research, uh, for the play, he um, he discovered all those records and all those songs, and then and then he used them uh, in Zoot Suit. That's how that came about. And oh, you know that Luis Valdez and 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 I are cousins. Oh, are you? How did how did that come to be? <laughs> I have no idea. I'm still not sure. But he would always call me primo, and and I thought it was just a term of affection, and and then. And he said, you know, we are related. I said, really? So I asked dad and dad says, really? But one not long ago, maybe just a couple of years ago, I said, Luis, what exactly is the connect? And I had no idea that his family had also grown up in, in the barrio in Tucson. I didn't know that. And apparently the connect is between his grandmother and my grandmother, dad's mother. And I don't remember what it was, but... That was the connection somehow. I said, "Well, wait a minute, if it's grandmothers. We're like first cousins. We're not even... He says, yeah. I'm like, I'm okay. Hey, Luis Valdez is a cousin. I'll take it, you know. But I only found that out in recent years that I've known Luis forever. You have such a rich
1: history. You and Carlos Almaras were also childhood friends. Can you talk to us That's, about
2: no meeting can you, Carlos? I mean can you believe it? Dad and Carlos... That's why I keep thinking I should have come out better. I mean, because I had these two amazing people in, in my life, you know, Carlos um, and I met in grade school, Humphreys Elementary in East LA. And it, in fact, it's funny, because <laughs> I had a best friend, Ishmael Ramos, who was also best friends with Carlos. Now at that time, my name was Edward Daniel Guerrero. So I grew up Eddie, which I didn't like. And he, they were assimilated, even though his birth name was Carlos Almaraz, he was born in Mexico City. It was a different time. So he was Charles. So now we're Charles and Eddie at that time. You want to see Charles and Eddie? Sure. This is one of those thrifty drugstore photos. We're like maybe 13, 12, 13. Can you see?
1: Oh, beautiful. That's amazing. Yes. It's it's in the document. It's in his documentary, isn't yes. it? Yes. I love this yeah.
2: photo so much that I'm determined to make it famous and I've used it many times. It's a great. I had braces on my teeth, and he's strangling me to try and make me smile to show my braces, and, and I'm refusing. That's with the background. But anyway, so Ishmael kept saying, Eddie, you've got to meet Charles, you've got to meet Charles. I'm like, oh yeah. And he's saying to Charles, oh, you've got to meet Eddie, you got to meet Eddie. So one day Ishmael Ramos introduces us, and that was the end of Ishmael Ramos. I mean, Carlos and I were just, that was it. We were just, because we had all the same everything, including the same dreams. You know, we all, we both wanted to get out and do big things and We were early adventurers, and we liked the same things, and it was just, uh, it was a a match. And that friendship went on to literally the day he died. I saw him in the hospital, uh, and then he died that night of, as you know, AIDS-related causes in 1989. So, yes, he, he was like a brother, really.
1: What was the impetus for both of you traveling to New York in your 20s? Think about it.
2: 1962 we flew on a prop. It took like 14 hours or something (laughs) with a stop in Chicago where there was snow. And we were like, what the fuck? Can you say fuck ass at Zoom? And, you know, we, uh, yeah. I mean, think of it. We had never been to New York, of course. We didn't even know anyone who'd been to New York. We had seen Breakfast at Tiffany's. That was what we knew about New York. And I thought, I need to be Holly Golightly, no question, and so I'm ready, you know. But uh, we decided that he wanted to be an artist always, and I wanted to be in musicals since junior high, and we had to be in New York for that. So he, our relationship very much is that he he was he was a year younger. But he was like an older brother because he was, uh, you know, this, this. And I go, okay, okay. It was like, you know, he was like an older brother, even though he was younger. And um, so he decided that he desperately wanted to see New York. And so he thought he would take a semester off. I think he was going to Cal State at that time, around that time. And, um, and he'd take a semester off and we could go to New York. And... He could help me get set up and get an apartment and everything if I loved it. And then he'd come back and I would stay or I could come back with him. And then we would have had a great adventure of a few months. So he came back as planned and I stayed 20 years. Can you believe it? What do you
1: what do you recall about those
2: early years? It was like Dorothy walking into Oz. That's what it was. I mean, we're talking East L.A. in 1962. You know, and we're in New York City. We don't know a single soul. And in fact, so the day he leaves, I now know nobody in New York. Nobody. I was working down on Wall Street. It was two men, probably about my age today, and an old secretary and me. So it's not like I knew people at work. I knew nobody. Nobody. So it was hard, but it was it was just sensational. It was just magic. Magic. You couldn't believe you were really seeing Radio City Music Hall. You were really seeing Wall Street. Oh my God, that is the Empire State Building. I mean, it was it was beyond beyond anything. It was magic. That's the only word. It was magic. I don't know if it's the same today. Kids are more sophisticated. They've seen more, But at that time, it was magic. It was just magic.
1: And you were uh, breaking into trying to break into the acting industry at that time.
2: I'm still trying to break in. (laughs) It feels like that. I always tell people I'm just an old codger trying to break into showbiz. It feels exactly the same. It's no different. You know? Yeah, yeah. I'm
1: sorry. How courageous a young Chicano man from East L.A. going to New York in the 60s and becoming an actor.
2: That's unheard of. Ignorance more than courage. I don't really know. But you know what? You know what, George? The truth is that when I landed at, 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 I think it was LaGuardia. No, no, I lie. It was, oh, damn it. Oh, I can't remember what it was called. But it what is became JFK, Kennedy Airport, after that terrible day in Dallas. Um, but I forget what the, uh, the airport was called. Idlewild. wild. We landed at Idlewild Airport, and at the airport, I'm like, oh, that's why I don't like living in East L.A. I'm a New Yorker. I just felt that's where I was supposed to be. It never once occurred to me, and believe me, it was lonely that first year. It was very difficult. But I never once even considered coming back. No, because that's where I was supposed to be. What were the challenges of trying to
1: become an actor at that time?
2: They didn't know what the hell I was. This was the era in musicals where it was blonde, blue-eyed juveniles. And here I was, and they didn't know what I was. So they literally would say to my agent, well, we like him, but he's too Mediterranean. That is the phrase. They, w- they didn't even say Latino because there were, this is before the Puerto Ricanos arrived. There was, there was one Mexican restaurant in the whole city, down the village, one. So we, we were completely like we had landed from another planet. So it was difficult, which is how I accidentally eventually became a, 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 a um, an agent, you know, a, a Broadway um, theatrical agent, because I was working and doing things, but it was just so difficult. They just didn't know what to do with me, and I decided to help out my agent. Before I knew it, I was an agent for almost a decade.
1: Oh, and I also was reading somewhere that that's when you came
2: out as a gay man as well. I never came out and I was never in, I just was, (laughs) you know, I realized I was gay, like maybe, I don't know, 12 or something. And I was like, oh, okay. I'm not sure what that is. I knew what it meant in terms of my, my uh, uh, choices, but I didn't know what it meant in my life. You know what I'm saying? There's, you know, as you know, I wrote a solo play called Gay Tino, and there's a scene in it where, I, where I'm where i thinking, I don't know what it means. You know, you have to realize it was 1962. There was no out and proud gay person on a magazine. There were no stories. There were no movies. There was no gay pride. Mike, there was nothing. There was nothing. It was your secret. You were alone. Very, very different. Very different. So, I just went to New York and then, of course, in musical theater, hello. I mean, I mean, we used to make fun of the straight boys. We used to bully them. <laughs> so, you know, you did have to be very careful when you were auditioning to try kind to of make, oh, how are you? You know, you had to really because even a whiff of uh-oh, out now today. They're four feet off the ground, accepting Emmys, and which is fantastic. But you know, you had to, you just had to really be careful. You were always on guard and careful, and it was, yeah, it was something. So I'm three thousand miles away. So after a few years of coming home on holidays, they stopped saying, "When are you going to get married?" They just kind of gave it up. And I never had this need because, obviously, everyone I knew knew I was gay in New York, and if I came home for a week once a year. So, I never had the need. I've got to tell my parents this is who I am. Or I, I just, I was, I was fine with it. And it just, you know, never, never happened. Carlos is the one that outed me to my father. Oh, tell us about that. I get uh, a letter from Carlos, literally on a piece of drawing paper written with a piece of charcoal. He was always an artist. The cat is out of the bag. The frijoles have been spilled. That's literally what it read. And and I I call him and he goes, well, your dad asked me to lunch and we started talking and then he finally asked me if you were gay and I said, yes. (laughs) And I'm like, okay. And uh, then my dad called and he was fine about it and he said, let's not tell your mom. You know, she was was kind of innocent. So we said not tell mom, you know. And uh, so then, years later, when I come back to L.A., I come with my partner Richard. We've been together forty-three years, and uh, and he's my roommate. He's my roommate. And my mother one day asked my brother, "I don't understand. They took this two-bedroom bath uh, two-bedroom uh, 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 apartment in in um, West Hollywood, and uh, but they're changing one room into a den. I mean, why? And Mark goes, "Ma, so now Mark outs me." And uh, and my mother is upset only that Mark knew and my dad knew, and she didn't. That was all. And then she adored Richard. She used to call him son number three. So I never, I always say I never came out. I kind of oozed out. You know, a little here, a little there. There was no, like, out and proud moment. I just, it was just different times. It was different times, you know? And it's important, especially for young people, to realize it was just a different time. What was
1: the impact of the, Stone, of the Stonewall riots? I'm sorry, nothing, I nothing. Nothing. Oh,
2: okay. I, I was so, and, and in fact, I do a presentation called Activism and the Arts, a Life Journey, about how late I came to my activist years, both as, as a gay man and, and as a Chicano, came very late. I was so focused on musical, musical theater and show business. That's all. And I was gay. You know, so in fact, I was off doing summer stock when uh, the Stonewall riots happened. I wasn't even in New York. But whereas I was fine about being gay, for me, it was a private matter. You know, I I was not going to put signs and flags and go out there. I just I couldn't, you know, uh, I wasn't hiding, but I, I, I just didn't want to advertise, as it were. Uh, it doesn't mean I wasn't glad it was happening, but I, I just wasn't going to participate, you know, uh, in it. So it did not affect me really at at all, unfortunately. Um, But I came to all that much later,
1: much later. So you went from being an actor in musical theater to becoming a casting agent. And was that what you were doing in your last days in New York? Was working as a casting agent? I'm not a casting agent.
2: I was a theatrical agent. Oh, I am so sorry. What what is the difference? I'm so sorry. It means sorry. that the, I represent an actor. Mm-hmm. The casting director is representing the producers. He says, um, I'm looking for a singer who weighs 80 pounds. I go, oh, I have about that's an agent. An agent works with a casting person, and the casting person works with the production.
1: I see.
2: So I represented oh. actors, including an 11 year old Sarah Jessica Parker and a 19 year old Fran Drescher. <laughs> it was a long time ago. So that's what it was. Half the original cast of a chorus line were, were my clients because I represent lots of dancers. <clears throat> and my last Broadway contract was Old Deuteronomy, Ken Page, and Cats. So my agent years were, were from a chorus line to Cats, those were my agent years. Then out here, I was casting for a while only because I got a call from a casting director friend in New York, and said, "What are you doing?" And I said, "Well, I'm unpacking my Barbara Streisand albums." Why? He said, "Well, you know, Lauren Bacall is going to be Woman of the Year at the Amundsen, and uh, do you want to cast it out there?" I'm like, "Okay," you know, because they knew me as an agent, they knew how I worked, they knew my taste. They knew I had good clients. And so I cast them and all of a sudden I'm, uh, I'm sitting with Stephen Sondheim because I'm uh, finding someone to replace Bernadette Peters when she's leaving Sunday Park with George. I'm working with Arthur Lawrence when La Caja is going on tour. And, I'm working, and, I, and suddenly I was casting big Broadway musicals. So the difference as, as I'm trying to get to is I love that because you're really working with a creative source. As an agent, you're only working for your actor with the casting director, but now I'm sitting with the creators, so I can say, "Well, you know, what if that you know that guy would be good for that part?" You're really sitting there in the in the room with the creators, so Tommy Toon, Harvey Firestein, <clears throat> all of them, all of them, and so I did that for I don't know three four years until I started producing for television. Uh, and is that when you came to Los Angeles, or what was it that? I'm, well, mijo, you've got to keep up or I'm going to have to leave you. Are you in LA All of this I'm telling you about was Los Angeles. It's when oh, I moved Lord. back to oh. Los Angeles. I was no longer a theatrical agent. I got into casting in LA.
1: Gotcha. So, what my question is what made you decide to come from New York to Los Angeles?
2: Well, there were a couple reasons. Two, So you really understand two reasons, George. (laughs) I know my life is complicated. I can barely keep up, I swear to God. Um, First of all, I was was 40. And I thought to myself, you know, New York is not a place to be old. And I could see myself at 65, which now to me seems young, but... I thought, I don't want to be 65 walking down slippery, snow-covered subway stairs, you know, walk. I, I thought, I, this is not a place to get old, unless you can afford only taxis and go off to the Hamptons in the summer, you know, you, you, you just, um it's not a good place to get old. And also, my parents were getting older, obviously, And so I thought I need to spend more than one week a year. Not even, because really I'd be running around with friends, you know, most of the time. And also, Zoot Suit came to Broadway for five minutes and ran a very short time, as you know. Um, And that was my worlds collided because there was my my New York theater, completely non-Latino world uh, in New York. And then out here, there'd be Carlos, and he'd be interested to meet a Chicano activist, Chicano artist, uh, Frank Romero, and and, uh, John Valadez. And I'm meeting all the artists, and and I'm feeling very Chicano out here. Then I go back to New York, and I'm that that other Dan, separate worlds. So now I'm sitting in a Broadway theater, which I do, you know, almost every night when I was living in New York as as a theatrical agent, except all the people on stage are brown. And I'm like, I, I can't even explain. And then I'm at Sardi's afterwards with the party. And it's usually at Ethel Merman and Gwen Verdon and Bob Fosse. And now it's, it's Eddie Olmos and Lupe of and Tony Plana. And it was, it was, it was surreal. It really was surreal. And so after that, I kept thinking about that. And then each year when I would come out, Carlos was, who was very involved, of course, working with Caesar and Dolores and, Everything <clears throat> using his art, um, but it would go away once I went back to New York. And, and but all of a sudden that pull started to get very strong. I thought, you know what, I want to be big, and I and I felt I could contribute because in 1982 there were not many Chicanos with the background that I had. You know, there weren't which is why I also had such a successful television career. In in, in the 90s, there weren't all these uh, Chicanos or Latinos producing. And there weren't any. I was it. So every time they wanted somebody, there I was. So um, I thought I should go out there while I fairly look youngish, because I always looked younger than my age, and, um, and start from scratch. So I did just what I had done before. I fly back here with Richard. I don't know a soul, except my mom and dad. I don't know anybody out here except Carlos, a couple of people i met, but I know nobody, you know. And in New York, I'm used to walking in somewhere, hey, Dan, hey, Dan, and all i I walk into events here and it's like, <laughs> and I'm like, hello, hello. It was very strange, very strange. And I wanted to get involved in the Latino community. So I started um, uh um, doing events for the um, Bilingual Foundation of the Arts, Carmen Zapata, and then I was involved with the Latino Theater Company, Evelina and you know, Jose Luis and you know, to get involved I, it was very important that I get involved and that's when I started to to produce fundraisers and get involved slowly um and work my way in, you know, cuz I was I was a latecomer and I but I eventually did it. And now Dolores Huerta's long time one of my closest friends, and you know Eddie, everybody. I've known them all now for well since the early '80s. But it started from nothing, you know, and I had to work my way in at age forty.
1: It's an illustrious, magical career. What what else can we describe it as? What what do you, what do you think are some of your career highlights? Like if you look back in time and say. Three things to say. Wow, those were
2: my uh, It'd be very hard to choose. Very hard to choose. Very hard to choose. Um. After Dad got the National Medal of the Arts from the Clinton White House, first Chicano ever to get it. Get this: the National Medal of Arts. There are twelve a year. He got it in '97. Um, it had already been around. I don't know, 10 years, let's say, but it had been around, it wasn't like new. 12 a year, there had only been four Latinos. In all those years, Jose Ferrer, Tito Puente, and Celia. might've been three. In all those years, 12 a year, for let's say 10 years, three Latinos. And that was the first Chicano. Since it's gotten better, I think Luis Valdez got it one year and there are more now, but anyway, and so shortly thereafter, I got a call, get this, from a Chicana in Paris, from West Covina, fell in love, followed some guy to, to Paris, that did not work out, but she stayed. And she had a radio show of Chicano music in Paris, Roxanne Frias, we're still friends, and she went to the Cité de la Musique in Paris. And they do world music. And she says, why have you never done Chicano music? And of course, they said, because you que Chicano, what is it? And uh, so anyway, by the time she left the office, they agreed that of a three-day festival of American music, one night would be Mexican-American Chicano. So I think one was blues and jazz and one was gospel and the third was Mexican Chicago At the Cité de la Musique in Paris. She tracked me down because dad was everywhere with the metal, you know, a lot of press. So I took dad and four musicians, including my brother, Mark, and uh, Flaco Jimenez, the master accordion Tex-Mex guy who I adore. And I brought him with four musicians and they each did a set and then they closed in a number together. So that was pretty awesome. I mean, to sit there bringing our culture, my dad, to Paris, and people on their feet, it was pretty cool. That was pretty cool, I gotta say. That was a biggie.
1: And you later produced a documentary about your father. Also, that played on PBS.
2: Yeah, not on purpose. Um, I. <laughs> I always wanted to be, I said, there's got to be a document. on him. There's got been for years, I was talking to all the top uh, uh, Chicano documentary filmmakers. There are quite a few, and they're the best. Ray Tellez and Hedra Galán, and there's a handful, Set um, Jesus Trevino. There were quite a few, and everyone, oh, God, yes, and there had to be sure, absolutely, my God, tick, tock, tick, tock, nothing. <clears throat> and... Um, so one day a friend of mine Nancy De Los Santos says, you know, we should at least get your dad on on tape telling his stories for research purposes. So dad came in from LA, uh, from LA, came into LA, I would say three times over like a year, year and a half, and we filmed him. You know, well lit and sound and all a friend from uh, KCET did the shoot. And of course, I knew everything. So I'd be off camera and say, tell the Disney story. Tell about uh, Lucha Villa. Tell them that, you know, it was easy for me. And I knew what I wanted to people to know. I knew what was important. And so we had all that footage. We put it away. Another year or two passes, and one day she says, you know, if we don't do it, it's never going to happen. And even though I was a producer... That means that HBO hires me, Disney hires me, I get a check, I go home. Documentary, you got to raise all the money, you're begging for money. I'm thinking, I don't want to. But we did. And this is before the net and crowdfunding and online, there was nothing. This was um, mid-90s, I think. No. Early 2000. No, yeah. It was about 2004, 2005, around there. But we pieced it together, five cents here, a dollar there, and 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 we did. And uh and then when we were doing it, I th- I said, you know, we should look at the footage, because they're gonna want to see him and hear him, and we can pull a couple of bites. And then as I'm looking at, I'm going, why would we have a VO get Eddie or luis to do a voiceover and we write a script when you got him telling his own story? And so that's the best thing about the documentary. You see dad, do the whole thing, telling his own story. And then Intercut, uh, Linda Ronstadt, Eddie Olmos, Luis Valdez, Cheech, Dolores Huerta, they're all in the documentary. So every time we'd get money, we'd run to Cheech and we'd tape. Then we'd wait. Six months later, we got some money, we'd run to Eddie. I mean, that's what it was like, you know. But we did it and it exists. And uh, yeah, so I, I was proud to finally do it. Lalo Guerrero, the original Chicano. And I called it that because he was of that first generation of Mexican-Americans born to to Mexican families who, when they were home, he was born in Tucson in 1916. It was Mexico. It was Mexico. That was true. Fresno, Sacramento, wherever. In your barrio, it was Mexico until you went to school. That's when you got the news. (laughs) That you're an American, but not really, you know? It's the same line we're walking today still. Is it better? Of course. Does it still stink? Of course.
1: What are some of the projects that you're working on today? I know you still keep very busy. What
2: are you working on? I know. It's amazing. I'm I'm amazed anybody cares at this age and stage. But yeah, I'm working on a lot of them. A lot. But since we're talking about dad, he wrote a children's song that I love—a Christmas song in the mid '50s called "Pancho Claus." I always wanted it to be a children's book, <clears throat> and then um, anyway, long story. So blah 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 blah, and I'm trying to get a, a literary agent, and you know, and I'm doing that with my left hand because I have a lot of stuff on my plate and not full time. And finally, I've, I'm at a brunch with three or four good friends. And I'm saying, talking about Pancho Claus. I said, I don't know what to do. I I mean, maybe I'll just self-publish at least to get it out there, just to get it out there and get it on Amazon. And my friend Bob Mackey, who is a designer and um, loves illustrations, loves illustrating, he said, oh, I'll do the illustrations. I said, are you kidding? No, I'd love to do it. And he did. So the book exists. And (laughs) I love it because, oh, Wait, I did a pitch yesterday, so it's here. This is it. But to see what does oh. it say? Written by Lalo Guerrero, illustrated by Bob Mackie. How would those two names ever be together? It's hilarious.
1: And is that available it's on Amazon? Is that available on Amazon, or where can we? It's on it Amazon.
2: Every- but the good news is that. With a, a, a top TV writer friend, Louisa Lachine. She and I have written a live action film on how Pancho came to be. And we just did a pitch. That's why the book is here Thursday. And we may have sold the idea. So fingers crossed. So that's just one of the many projects. Yeah.
1: You've had this beautiful life, an illustrious career, you know, also kind of interspersed with some sadness, right? The passing of Carlos San Maras to AIDS, your best friend, your parents, and kind of to tie in with the theme of healing, how do you facilitate your own process of healing through these losses?
2: It's not easy. I'll tell you, it's not easy. And then you have the pandemic start and Richard, my partner, 43 years, I'll Overnight, out of nowhere, he had a brain tumor. Surgery, I'm working to get him well by myself because the pandemic had started. There's nobody. And brain surgery, two days later, he's on our sofa and I have about 20,000 pills. Our health system is a little wacko. And about five months into it, he's diagnosed with fourth stage Parkinson's. So, and then in the middle of the pandemic and him, my two closest female friends of over forty years died within four months of each other—one of cancer, one of kidney failure—and so it piles up so much that pretty soon you just—you got to keep moving forward. What else can you do? You know, you just got to move forward, and um, it's, it's not been easy. You know, I have my days, but I—I I just push myself. I always push myself. You, like everybody, you just have to take one day at a time. Everybody has stuff happen in their life, you know. And um, so you just keep going. Yeah, but but that's a biggie. I never had a thing about aging. I didn't care when I turned 40 or 50 or 60 or 70. Really never have. But the thing about aging is that all of a sudden, all that support system, you're closest, because you don't get through alone, you know, you you don't get through alone. You get through with friends. You help them; they help you. That's how you get through. And that circle gets smaller and smaller. And even though I'm still blessed with a lot of friends, and I've always had friends younger than me, but they don't have that history. You know, you have friends that you know forty years, and and suddenly they're almost all gone. And it's 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 sobering. It's sobering. I have to tell you. I started telling a friend the other day. I says, you know the f word is suddenly come into my life and i don't mean the regular one that word is fear all of a sudden you're afraid of falling and you're afraid of this and you got to be careful and it it's a whole thing that i i didn't expect i didn't expect so so healing and moving forward and moving yourself forward no matter what becomes more challenging but you got to do it
1: what What's is the alternative what what is your advice for Younger people in your position that are moving forward, say in our, you know, fifties and sixties. What's what's what advice? Well, I'm saying, you have keep and, moving uh,
2: forward. That's really it. Move forward, no matter what. Now, moving forward doesn't mean you're in a straight line. It means making a sharp left, going under that bridge, climbing over that rock, you know, fording the stream, chopping down some uh, palm trees. Is not easy, but you have to keep moving forward always, no matter what. No matter what, then crap happens to the best. And I've been extraordinarily blessed. I mean, extraordinarily blessed, but it's still been a lot. Many people a lot worse than, than me, but um, you just have to move forward.
1: Just move forward. Thank you so much for your time, Dan. One last question. How do you
2: want to be remembered? <laughs> well, first of all, I want to be remembered, period. <laughs> I don't know. I guess remember as maybe a good person, you know that that left a tiny footprint, you know. The, while I was here, you know, my darling Linda Ronstadt, who, as you know, has Parkinson's and has not been able to sing for a good many years now, and I love. I, I read it not long ago, and she said something like, uh, um, "That she has to find new ways to contribute." And now she just finished a second book and she's still out there doing things. And that's the thing that you have to contribute. You can't just take space up. So I would like to be remembered as somebody who was a good guy, who did a little something for our community. And uh, that's about it.
1: Well, thank you so much for your time. That has been such a beautiful interview and so enlightening. I thank you for joining us, Dan. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on Healing with Dr. George, The Power of Chicano Latinx Art. Please continue to tune into our series as we explore the themes of self and the community healing through Chicano Latinx Art. Also, don't forget to visit the website www.latinoarte.com in order to view the beautiful array of Chicano Latinx art that is available to add to your own collection.
0: Every day.